Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 42 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, November the 17th. And Leon, for this week, we're talking to Marcus Mufarij. He's the Chief Operations Officer of ServCorp. That's right. Uh, Marcus is going to be talking to us all about running the global business of ServCorp. He's an Australian, uh, which is actually an office space provider in cities like New York. Yeah, interesting. Interesting trade that an Australian company is handling... uh rentals and high high-end uh, Manhattan places. That's right and it's it's a fascinating interview. And then after that we're tapping the wisdom of economist Stephen Kukulis from the far from serene fields of Canberra. That's right and he'll be talking to us all about the latest figures which are quite alarming. Indeed they are. Anyway, let's listen to Marcus Mufarage. Marcus, tell us about the Servcore. You, you guys are doing amazing things over there. You uh, rent out office space. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, we do. I mean, we've been in flexible workspace for, for 40 years, believe it or not. I know that we were a, a very ahead of the curve. But the remarkable thing is that, um, you know, we've always been a niche product being the premium brand in, in a niche market. Um, but it's really, uh, the market is really changing and, and flexible workspace is becoming much more of a, a mainstream thing. And uh, and so, you know, we're transitioning from being a, a niche within a niche to being an, uh, the premium niche within a more mainstream market. And, and there's uh, there's really a tremendous amount of demand for for, fle- uh, for, for premium flexible workspace. Uh, well, tell us, I mean, you, you've got, uh, you provide um, uh, virtual administrative services to something like 35,000 businesses in 54 cities around the world. You're, you're working out of New York at the moment. I believe um, you can get an op- a private office at the World Trade Center in Manhattan for about $1,000 a month and a virtual office package for 500 Is that true? That's true. Uh, in fact, yeah, virtual offices are, are even a little bit cheaper than that. But if you want to come in and work at a desk on a, on a fairly permanent basis, it's about $500. But our virtual offices started about 250 and that's that's in one World Trade Center in, in New York. Who are the companies uh, so, renting from you? I mean, we have a, a really broad range of, of customers. And, and I guess our product, as you said, start at, at about $250 and that's our virtual office product. And we go right up to full time offices so you know in in the world trade center you can either just casually use the space or you can get a desk or you can actually have a, an office for you know six to eight people with with gun barrel views of manhattan from the 85th floor uh and so that broad range of product means we have a pretty broad range of of customers but typically our customers uh in our office suites in our more permanent offices uh, have been branch offices of multinational companies but also you know particularly here in the u.s you know you might be a lawyer in uh in boston uh, and you're used to having a, a really nice office in a really nice building, but you might just have one customer in New York that you want to send a partner down to service that customer. And so we get a lot of guys like that, a lot of, a lot of hedge funds, uh, a lot of financial services companies, a lot of fintech companies, and, and then we get quite a lot of startups, but, but not startups in the, in the we've just started out of our garage kind of startups. We get a lot of startups who are sort of three or four years in and have had a few rounds of funding and are actually starting to really concentrate on, on what their first impression is like so that they can increase their sales. Uh, and so most of our, our office clients have been in business for, for more than five years. And that's sort of based on the, the research that we've done in, in talking to them. Our virtual office clients are really different. Our virtual office clients are all micro businesses and again, a very wide and varied range of industries and, and 
types of clients, but our virtual office clients are very typically people who recognize that, that their, their success is going to be based on keeping their costs pretty low, but, but still servicing their customers in a, in a really professional way and, and having a really good recognizable address. And so we have a lot of people who might be just working from home, but they, they want to have a Manhattan address. And we have a lot of people who have an office in Louisville, Kentucky, but they, they want to um, they have clients in Miami or in LA. And so it's really important for them to have a local address and a local telephone number to be able to, to service the customers. So, so that's what we're doing here in the US. And we, and we also, of course, do it in Australia and, and right across Asia and, and Europe as well in the Middle East. Marcus, the virtual aspect of business, that's obviously very new. How does that look? What exactly does it mean in terms of the, the, your, the client, your client what the cu- and his What client. the customer gets. Yeah. Well, the way, yeah, the way we put it is you get everything except the office. So, so you, can, you, you can actually use our address. So you get a, a recognizable address and we'll, we'll forward your mail for you uh, and we'll answer your telephone for you. So you get a receptionist who will actually answer your calls and it doesn't go to a call center. It's actually your receptionist sitting in the office space. And, uh, and you can also, on a casual basis, just use a desk or an office or a meeting room when you want and you can book that through the through the app that we provide our virtual office clients with so so really they're using the office as a service and it works incredibly well and and we certainly curate our clients to make sure that they're the they're, you know that they're the clients that we want and and we build that membership uh with with uh, you know a lot of a lot of businesses that that become really successful. That would mean uh, there would also have to be a dress code and stuff like that. No one could just turn up in flip flops. Um, yeah, I mean we're not we're not too keen on flip flops because we we certainly do want to be positioned as the as the premium brand. And it's nothing against flip flops. I personally love flip flops, but but uh, in terms of where our, our brand is positioned, you know we're in in some of the best buildings in the world. And you've mentioned One World Trade Center, but we're also in the Cheese Grater in London. We're in um, Emirates and Etihad Towers in uh, the UAE, and uh, we're in 2IFC in Hong Kong, and of course we're, we've got a new flagship in, in Barangaroo. So, you know, we're in, we're in super recognisable and, and super premium addresses, and, um, and so really it's the businesses that just take themselves a little bit more seriously. So going back to the virtual reality thing, do you think it'll ever get to the point where virtual reality would put a a client, your client and his client together in virtual reality rather than in the office itself? Uh, look, I, I think that the, the physical, it, it's where the power comes from, from a virtual office point of view, is the combination between physical and virtual. And I think that certainly, um, you know, with things like telepresence and, and, and the quality of video conferencing now, that's becoming more and more of a thing. But, but I think that, you know, it is really important to have a, a central like meeting point to actually press the flesh, and and I think that, that virtual virtual reality will certainly be an integral part of, of how business works in the future. But actually, um, you know, we, we've certainly found that it's the unique combination that we've got of this. Um, virtual network, telecommunications network that allows us to, to service people's clients and connect them to their to their sales calls, um, combined with the physical presences that, that really make it a, a unique offering to help these businesses become more successful. There's a big trend now towards co-working spaces. So you are you doing anything in that area? Yeah, certainly. So I mean, the ecosystem for us is is virtual offices, co-working, and physical offices. And and you know, co-working is very very fashionable. It's, it's our view that co-working needs to fit as part of an ecosystem and and certainly for us um, you know we've done some some fantastic 
co-working facilities uh, and we started investigating this trend you know five years ago we started rolling out our first co-working facilities the first one actually was here in New York uh, and that was about three years ago and uh, now we've got seven around the world and we're rolling out more across our portfolio but you know certainly I, I think that it, it is really changing the way people see um, how they work and uh, and how much flexibility they want from their workspace. And so, uh, you know, it's it sort of become a, a really natural part of, of the Surfcorp ecosystem. And, and we started building them because we were responding to people who were in virtual offices but weren't quite ready to take the leap into a, a full-time physical office and there's a pretty big pot price gap there so co-working fitted really nicely in that in in bridging that gap between getting your business running with a virtual office and then taking your own your own physical office what are the sectors that mainly use Servcore? i'd imagine there'd be a lot of professional services firms and a lot of tech companies would that be right yeah, we're, we're, we are very heavy in professional services firms, and and certainly very uh, very heavy in, in tech companies as well. But but really, it's a very very broad array. You'd be really surprised. I mean, in our office, uh, as a, and as as you stated, I'm I'm based in One World Trade at the moment in New York. Um, in in that floor, as as office clients, we have people in the automotive industry, we have people in manufacturing, we have quite a few hedge fund managers, we have uh, people in professional services, we have management consultants, and so. It really does go across a, a broad uh, range with a little bit of a heavier weighting in financial services and, and tech. So the ambience of an office is important for the image of the client. Um, where do you fit into this? Um, I think you're not very much like Google, for example. Yeah, we're not. We're not. We're definitely not necessarily um, the people who want to wear flip flops or ride scooters to work. And but that doesn't mean. I mean, Google are actually our clients in a, in a number of different locations. Um, and and we're certainly, as I said, I'm, I'm not averse to flip flops. But in general, uh, I think that people who are our clients appreciate uh, just a little more maturity. We like to say that your business has graduated to be a little bit more serious. And so I think, uh, you know, whilst we don't enforce a strict dress code, the dress code that has naturally evolved is is a little more serious. So uh, it's certainly come back from from suits and is now more blazers and loafers, but it's uh, it's definitely not um, degraded to flip-flops, if you like. <laughs> yeah, okay. There, and the office itself is more like um, walnut panelling than uh, wild wallpaper. Yeah, and again, I mean, we're sort of, we've sort of um, gone from being sort of a, a little bit cold and austere to a much more approachable uh, a much more approachable feel. And certainly uh, in Australia, Barangaroo has kind of been, as I said, a, a new flagship for us, and it's really embraced that more approachable feel. Um, so it, it, it's a little less walnut and a little less granite and a little more, a little, a little warmer. So, so we are certainly moving in that direction. And, and I think that's part of what I mentioned right at the start about us going from, from being the premium niche in a, in, a, in, a, in a niche market to being the premium niche in a, in a more mainstream market. So I think we're appealing to a broader audience. Marcus Mufarouge, thank you very much for your time. My great pleasure. Thank you. A lot of good pointers there, Leon, about enterprise and whatnot. And, and also about uh, the changing nature of uh, workplaces. Indeed it is. Yeah, it's becoming much more rent what you want and don't spend money you don't have to. That's right. Now, Stephen Kukoulis and what's going on in Canberra and around. Stephen Kukoulis, the latest figures on consumer confidence from Westpac are down. And the wages growth figures are, what, 
1.5%, which is below expectations, and that was actually boosted by the minimum wage increase. What's your view about this? Look, the problem for the economy is in the household sector, broadly defined. And that household sector, as we know over recent years, if not decades, has been accumulating a lot of debt as we've been buying houses and pushing up house prices. And uh, when wages growth is strong, that's been you know, an eminently reasonable way to grow the economy. But now we've got this problem, a combination of globalization, technological advancement, a softish economy have sort of fed into this point where uh, even though we've had good jobs numbers the last 12 months or so, the unemployment rate and underemployment rate is still very high. As economics tells us, when demand for labour is not really exceeding supply of labour, which is evident now, uh, wages are very, very weak. So the problem that's emerging on the household side is that your income, wages growth is only growing at 2%. We know inflation's a little below that, but basically close to 2%. So the purchasing power of consumers is being held back. And that's what's that's the biggest threat to the economy, as the Reserve Bank have mentioned, and of course, as Treasurer Scott Morrison has mentioned. Well, of course, the Reserve Bank has been talking about economic growth edging up to 3%. It's talked about wages growth actually kicking in. The latest figures don't suggest that it's going to be happening. No, they don't. And in fact, that, that that's the concern. Look, I, I think it's important to say we're not heading for a hard landing or recession. I think we've just got to clear out that the business sector is doing okay, that we do have business investment turning up uh, at a moderate pace. Uh, we've got public sector infrastructure spending growing at a, at a solid pace. So they're, they're the good parts of the economy, but we don't have a synchronised upswing in all sectors of the economy. And I think that the optimism that the Reserve Bank and others have been talking about, that 3% plus GDP that they've been forecasting for some time now, is reliant on the good parts continuing to grow, of course, the, the infrastructure and the, and the business investment. But they also rely on the household consumption side of the economy to be a little bit stronger than it currently appears. That I think if we wait for the next round of forecast updates from the Reserve Bank. Uh, we, interestingly, we're approximately a month away from getting the mid-year economic fiscal update from the Treasury and Treasurer. That'll have the updated budget forecast, but also it has economic forecasts included in that uh, document. It'll be interesting to see whether they still have that particularly upbeat view on the consumer side, because I think as we sit here now, the risks are firmly starting to move to, to a softer side. And that's just going to make bottom line GDP of 3% a lot harder to achieve. And so 3% GDP could be a few years away. Well, at least a few years, because the the issue of the household sector, it doesn't appear as if it's going to change quickly. The other thing that I guess <laughs> that everybody loves to talk about uh, is that a lot of the consumer optimism in, in years gone by has been linked to the fact that their wealth from rising house prices has been one of the important ingredients of that optimism, that you know, okay, I've got a lot of debt and maybe my wages aren't growing very much, but my house is going up at 10% plus per annum. Now, if we look at the latest CoreLogic house price uh, series, we know that Perth and Darwin, okay, not the biggest parts of the country, but they've been very weak. Prices are actually down 10 and 20% respectively from the peak levels. But absolutely critically, Sydney has come off. And in the last three months, there's been small falls. Yes, they're only smaller, a total of about 1% for the three months combined. But nonetheless, it's starting just to taper off. And the auction clearance rates, which are, of course, a leading indicator of prices are weaker. If that continues, then all of a sudden, the household balance sheet, if you like, that optimism that was being generated by house prices quickly disappears. Melbourne's still strong, but even it's come off a bit 
And then you look at the other cities, you know, Brisbane, Adelaide, you know, they're, they're plodding along. They're hardly strong at the moment too. So we've even got for the household sector the concern that, you know, that ticket to wealth creation, you know, house prices going up forever and ever and ever appears to be starting to falter as well. So when we get into 2018, uh, there could be a risk that with a with a further softening in house prices that consumers will be having not only uh, weak wages, underemployment levels being relatively high, but also their asset prices, housing, starting to, uh, starting to sort of go against them. Which would suggest that the next set of or the forthcoming sets of uh, consumer confidence figures for the next year or so will be fairly down. Yes, and that's the funny thing. And, and Liam, you did, you did touch on the Westpac numbers which came out this week uh, being back below 100. So I was reading uh, Bill Evans from the Chief Economist at Westpac, reading his uh, review of those numbers. Um, and it's interesting that for 11 of the last 12 months, it's been below 100. This measure of consumer sentiment, I think the prior month that popped up a little bit for some reason to just above 100. But basically, what the consumer sentiment numbers are telling us is that there's that concern out there that's causing people to be a little bit gloomy about their future uh, income prospects and these sorts of things. And and we know that there's been a nice correlation when people are feeling a little bit gloomy, they tend to be cautious in their spending. They tend to be cautious in their borrowing. So I wouldn't be at all surprised uh, in the level towards the end of this year, we were almost there, but certainly in the first quarter of next year, that we actually do get a material slowing in credit growth, people um, cutting back on their borrowing, but also that we see you know, a pretty sluggish Christmas period for uh, sales from the retailers and that uh, will keep that, that economy and the consumer side of the economy you know, plodding along at a very poor level of growth and thankfully, thankfully, we've got the growth coming from uh, business investment. Guy DeBell was referring to that in his speech this week, that non-mining business investment has ticked up quite uh, sharply in uh, infrastructure spending and in services. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, when we have a little look at some of the uh, in-depth numbers in the CapEx and the business investment numbers, yeah, we, we know that tourism's doing very, very well. And tourists require hotels to, to um, stay at. They require restaurants and things like that. So we're seeing a bit of CapEx in those sort of areas, which is, which is good. And uh, we know that when there's major events, even in the big cities of Sydney and Melbourne, very, very hard to find a hotel room. So it says to me that we need to build more uh, of that sort of capex and of course the other thing with the population growth that again is very evident for anybody who's in the middle of sydney and melbourne the congestion the the public transport infrastructure is quite poor and that can't be fixed quickly so we need to see gosh five years plus of uh, significant investment there they're the things that are likely to prevent a hard landing in our economy as long as we have the the, I guess the government wherewithal to continue down the track and build those things and also the private sector to look after the tourism boom, the education boom and those sorts of services that are linked to sort of aged care, you know, hospitals and these sorts of things, which is sort of the, the things that we consumers are demanding from our governments. And indeed, the NAB business survey showed that business activity operations were at their highest level in 20 years, which is quite extraordinary. Yes. All of that won't be enough because of what's happening with consumer sentiment and uh, with wages. Exactly. Well, it's interesting, yes, and the NAB survey was terrifically upbeat. It has set a 20-year high for the business conditions and business confidence measures. You know, ter- terrific result. The interesting thing to, with this conversation that we're having right now, too, is to remember that uh, household expenditure, you know, the, the amount of money that you and I spend every day at the shops and you know, on our uh, health care and banking services and all this sort of stuff, that's about 55% of GDP. It's a little over half of the economy is the household sector and our day-to-day spending. Business investment, while it's 
what's an absolutely vital part of the economy is only about 13 or 14 percent of um, of GDP. So uh, if you've got the household sector sort of flat and business investment going up, uh, it's sort of like a, a ratio of about four to one that you need. There's extra power from the business investment bottom line growth to actually feed into your bottom line GDP. And I think that's, you know, we want business investment to grow. That's critical. And it's good news. But we also want the consumer to sort of chug along with them if we humanly can do that. That's quite critical, isn't it? The issue is no matter how strong business investment is, when wages aren't growing and when household spending isn't growing, we're muddling on and not really uh, building the economy. And I think that's the critical issue. And it's one of the reasons you know, I look very closely uh, every day at the interest rate futures uh, for, for, for my sins. And, it's, and, and of course, the, the financial markets price in what they expect to be happening to interest rates, you know, one, two, three years down the track. And about six to eight weeks ago, the market was comfortably pricing in two interest rate hikes by the, uh, by the end of 2018. We were going to be seeing the Reserve Bank hiking twice. Now... There's only a 50% chance of one rate hike by the end of 2018, and the full single rate hike has been pushed back to the middle of 2019. But the market's still very fickle about that too. So we've even got the markets now saying, well, hang on, we thought the economy was going to be much stronger just just six or eight weeks ago. Now that reassessment's occurred, partly because of those wages numbers that we're seeing, but also partly from the really weak retail sales numbers, which were released a couple of weeks ago. The market's now saying, well, hang on, the Reserve Bank can't afford to hike because the economy just isn't strong enough. That'll be the really interesting thing to watch over the next uh, couple of months as we get the next labour market updates, we get the consumer sentiment numbers, and we see what's happening in the global economy as well. Interest rate hikes will probably be a 2019 story, two years' time. If at all. Look, and, and that's the curious thing. And, I, you know, the, that's the market pricing, but also the market economists who actually sort of put their necks on the chopping block as well. I've noticed, uh, you know, a, a quite a strong majority. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the next survey that comes out from Bloomberg. Uh, but a strong majority are saying no change all through 2018. Look, there's still one or two who are clinging to that rate hike sometime in 2018. And, well, in a funny way, I hope they're right because it'll mean the economy is strong. But at this stage, the market and the market economists are, are rapidly scaling back expectations for rate hikes. And all it'll take is a little bit of bad luck and heaven forbid, on in a couple of months, we could be talking about the prospect of a rate cut. But that would require another low CPI, more low wages. And hey, it's it, it, it'd be silly to rule that out. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time again. Thanks, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? Oh, look, those latest figures on uh, wages growth and uh, consumer confidence are quite alarming, and he's really hit the nail on the head. Yeah, absolutely. That takes us to the news, and uh, what's in your basket this week, Leon? Well, Gary, the big focus for the coming weeks for breakfast will be Theresa May's flagship European Union withdrawal bill. It returns to the House of Commons. The bill is in the committee stage, where lawmakers will go through it line by line and consider amendments. The Brexit bill is so important that it's being handled by a committee for the whole House, debated in the main chamber of the Commons, where everyone gets to chip in, and pretty much everyone will. The bill itself is 66 pages long, but 188 pages of amendments have been put forward so far. 
are. Both opponents and supporters of Brexit see this as a chance to try to influence the process of leaving the EU. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, only has a majority in the Commons thanks to the support of Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionists, which makes them very vulnerable to any rebellions. What we don't know yet is when all those days for debate will be. May's government has so far announced that the first two days will be Tuesday and Wednesday this week, but beyond that, no further dates have been made public. Even if the next two days are at the start of next week, Parliament will then take a break for Chancellor of the Exchequer Philip Hammond's November the 22nd budget, and there'll be a week of subsequent discussion on that. So this is going to take some time, Gary. Yeah, and meantime, Theresa May is in serious trouble politically, and she's had to accept that the full Parliament should vote on the terms of the divorce from the EU. But talks in Brussels have stalled, the pound's taken a hammering, and there's concern in the European capital she won't survive as a British Prime Minister. Well, that's right. And uh, Martin Barnier, the uh, European Union chief negotiator, says they're preparing for no deal. Yeah, I bet Britain doesn't feel very happy about having voted that way. No, Britain doesn't have a very strong negotiating hand. Now to Australia, and Reserve Bank of Australia Deputy Governor Guy DeBell has expressed confidence that there will be an uptick in non-mining investment. In a speech to the UBS Australasia Conference, Dr DeBell said the boom in the services sector and infrastructure was driving the growth in investment. A lot of this, he said, was not being picked up by the official data. The annual annual national accounts data indicate that much of a growth in business investment in recent years has been in the service sector, he said, including industries such as health, information, media and telecommunications. And he said the services sector does not have good coverage in the government's capital expenditure survey, particularly health and education, because it only covers around half of investment spending in the non-mining sectors. He said other area of investment had been robust of late was in those parts of the economy associated with infrastructure spending. And he said a share of those projects have been completed by the private sector on behalf of the public sector. Non-mining investment is picking up, according to the RBA. So Services have got a problem. I mean, if you look at the 10,000 jobs that are about to go in the banking sector, well, yes, a bit of a well, worry. Well, that'll be something to watch out for, I think. Now, the ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index jumped 2% last week to 114.8, its highest level in seven weeks, despite the political uncertainty. The index saw a solid rise in households' views towards both current and future economic conditions, bouncing 3.5% and 7% respectively. Views towards current conditions are at their highest point in 14 weeks. Households' views about the state of their current finances slipped 0.9%, but views towards future conditions remain unchanged last week following three consecutive falls. And the four-week average for the financial situation next year sub-index now sit under its long-term average. But what was worrying was Westpac's measure of Australian consumer sentiment. That's eased back in November with a survey of 1,200 people by the Melbourne Institute and Westpac Bank dipping below 100. So the pessimists now outnumber the optimists, Gary. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, well, the latest figures point to an unwinding of some of October's jump, which took consumer sentiment to its highest for the year. And Westpac Chief Economist Bill Evans said constant media coverage around the prospect of rising interest rates might be unnerving households. And the survey showed confidence of respondents who held a mortgage fell by 4.5% compared to a more modest fall of 1.4% for those owners who are mortgage-free and 0.5% increase for 10 and he said economic uncertainty features in November, and this was likely to have been affected by the citizenship saga impacting federal parliament. And the economic conditions sub-index for the next 12 months fell 6.2%, unwinding most of last month's strong rise. And the economic outlook over the next five years sub-index declined 2.2%. So that's a bit of a worry. It is indeed. And it's interesting that Bill Shorten, who didn't really get much of a seat at the Business Council uh, lunch table, is back on their uh, come and talk to us, Bill. That's right. That's right. Yes. Well, it's all happening politically. Now, 
On the other hand, Australian businesses are now enjoying the best business conditions in more than 20 years, according to the latest National Australia Bank's Monthly Conditions Index. The index showed growth was strongest for all sectors except for retail. Improved trading conditions and strong profitability saw business conditions soaring to a high of 21 index points in October. This is up from 7 points in September, and it's the highest level since the monthly series began in 1997. NAB's indicator of employment conditions is firm, suggesting there'll be adequate jobs growth to reduce the unemployment rate for the rest of 2017 as well as into 2018. But business confidence is not so solid, coming in at eight index points, which is still above its long-term average. So that's quite different, though, from to the consumer figures. Yeah, it is. It's odd, isn't it? The, the, the old traditional way of judging the economy is changing, isn't it? That's right. Now, um, Australian wages growth has come in below expectations. Wages rose 0.5%. This was below market expectations of 0.7%. And it was largely the result of one-offs in enterprise agreement increases, end of financial year wage reviews, and the Fair Work Commission's annual minimum wage reviews. But the bottom line is that the minimum wage increase didn't lift the wage growth that much. No, in, in fact, wages really are going backwards. Yeah. Not keeping up with inflation. No, no, indeed. The wages price index has recorded quarterly wages growth in the range of only 04 to 0.6% for the last 13 quarters for the June quarter of 2000 to the June quarter of 2014. And, uh, you know, so in the latest set of figures, annual w- growth for September rose 2%, only marginally above the 1.9% level reported in the June quarter. Private sector wages rose one. 0.9%. Public sector wages grew 2.4% through the year to the September quarter 2017. And meantime, the public perception is that the top of the list, the executives, are getting big increases and they're getting zipped. That's right. And that's, that's bad politically. I think so. It will pan out politically at the next election. Now, shares in the agribusiness company Elders surged 7.9% to $5.60 after it announced it had more than doubled its profit to $116 million, up from $51 million the year before, and it was paying out a dividend for the first time in nearly 10 years. Elders reported underlying profit had risen by $16.5 million to $57.7 million. The increased profit came on the back of strategic acquisitions of Ace Olsen, a New South Wales-based horticultural operation, Southern District's estate agent in West Australia and buying a 30% stake in Stockco Livestock Financing Business and an additional 10% of Elders Insurance, taking Elders' total ownership of Elders Insurance to 20%. It was also the result of improved profitability across its products with strong sheep and cattle prices, underlying profit in the company's feed and processing services rising by 17% or $1 million, and margins for Elders' real estate business improving by $2.7 million. And the lift in profit comes with Elders moving out of the first three years of its eight-point plan, which has seen the company exiting from the non-core live export business to help drive cost efficiencies and Elder's Chief Executive Officer Mark Allison said this allows the company to focus on growth and in good news for investors, Elders has announced it started paying out a dividend for the first time since 2008. (laughs) The ghost of uh, Jack Elliott's on its way back. That's right. Well, that's very good news. It's very good news. Now, Amazon has outlined plans for its operations in Australia to more than 600 potential customers at its first marketplace summit in Sydney. The company says its logistic warehouses are now operational and ready to deliver goods. Australian country manager 
Rocco Branagas has not spelt out exactly when the retail giant will launch in Australia, saying only it will be really soon. City analysts expect Amazon will launch ahead of Black Friday on November the 24th. Mr. Branagas said Amazon will, in his words, not sacrifice long-term success for short-term gains. Amazon will use a similar strategy for its rollout to the one used in Spain, where it launches several categories and services simultaneously and gradually adds more categories and features over time. And it will be selling products using two models. First, it will be selling products out of its own warehouse. Under the direct retail model, Amazon sets prices, deals with customers and delivers orders. And it will be selling from third parties through its marketplace. And under that model, other companies will use the platform to sell their goods but set their own prices and they're responsible for shipping orders. Now, selling on Amazon Australia Marketplace reportedly costs $49.95 per month, plus 6 to 15% of completed sales. And about half the products of Amazon Amazon sells globally are through its marketplace models and thousands of Australian sellers have already registered to sell on Marketplace. And 2 billion products have been sold through Marketplace globally in the first half of 2017. We're watching it with a bit of trepidation, but also I think the consumers are very keen to see it. That's right, and it's really going to shape up the retail sector. It will indeed. It's interesting, um, Amazon is going to bring in its prime products much earlier than it's done elsewhere. That's right. So it's obviously optimistic about the Australian market. Well, sees Australia as a very good market. Yep. Now, finally, Dulux has lifted its full-year profit 9.6% to $142.9 million. The company expects further growth locally and offshore. Sales revenue was up 4% to $1.78 billion for the year to September 30, with the Australian-New Zealand businesses driving its earnings. The Australian-New Zealand uh, operations contributed approximately 70% of the group's earnings before interest and tax. And Dulux Managing Director Patrick Houlihan said the company's well-established businesses are now allowing it to invest in growth initiatives offshore. He says its premium Craig and Rose paint products and Sally's range have been launched into Bunnings and home-based stores throughout the UK and Ireland. The company had also signed agreements for its new PT, Avian and Sally's joint venture in Indonesia, giving it access to approximately 40,000 retail hardware outlets in that market. And it's also extending its profitable Sally's business in Hong Kong and China. Another rocket ship on the top. That's right, that's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're going to be talking to Mike Sakalis, and he's the guy who has bought in, been bought in to digitise the Collingwood Football Club. Yeah, and that's fascinating. It just shows the corporate nature of sport is getting bigger and bigger. That'll be fascinating to listen to. And that's it for us this week. You can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-O-Z, or on Facebook. Looking forward to talk to you next week, and take care.